and welcome to Underrated. And I, I'm done with that. I'm not doing that anymore. All right, this is a show where we talk about great films that just don't get enough love. Uh, but apparently not today. Thanks, James. <laughs> uh, oh, man. It's going to be that episode, is it? Yep. And uh, I am your host, Gabriel Green, and I'm joined by my co-host who is glowering at me, James Hamrick. How's it going, partner? Well, we'll see. It was going well, but we'll see how it is by the end of this episode. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, this week we are continuing our horrifying journey through October with James's pick, which is. That's where you can. Oh. <laughs> the 2004 movie Saw by James Wan, which I think is actually pretty good. Yes, apparently you do. And I'm, I'm still curious as to why. Uh, and but before we get into that, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. And uh, before we move into the main topic, have you seen any cool movies this week that you want to mention? Well, the only movies I've seen recently um, is Star Wars. That Last Jedi trailer just really put me in the Star Wars mood. So uh, a friend and I had started a marathon a few months ago. We watched through the prequels and the Clone Wars and Rebels, and then we kind of stalled out. But that, that trailer reinvigorated us. So we watched Rogue One. Um, and I continue to enjoy it a lot. Uh, it's it probably looks the best of the whole series in terms of like effects and uh, cinematography and things like that. It's just so that that whole last battle of Scarif is a, a visual masterpiece to me. Um, yeah, like uh, people say that people say that uh, Tony Gilroy took over directing for that last class, but I I really don't I don't think I believe that. I'm pretty sure even if Gilroy was writing, I'm pretty sure that uh, Edward, uh, Edwards was behind the camera because that's it's it's completely in sync with all of his, his style. Yeah, you watch Godzilla and you watch Rogue One and there's definitely like a stylistic consistency between the two. Um, he, I think even when his worst tendencies kind of find themselves in the movie, like he, his characters aren't always the greatest, but he gets scale really really well um and so whether it's godzilla and other monsters fighting in giant cities or this huge epic land and space battle like it always looks well and it it looks like him uh so i i give a lot of the credit to that last um portion of the movie to him it just it looks stunning and then after that naturally we went into a new hope and this was one of my most enjoyable viewings of the movie uh i'm not really sure why but I, I think part of it maybe is just because I kind of grew up with it. And so every time I rewatch it, it's just, oh, we're watching A New Hope again. And a lot of talking throughout. And I think this time, because I'm trying to like, oh, I'm, I'm watching the series seriously to try to get myself ready for The Last Jedi. There, was, like, there wasn't a lot of talking or joking or quoting. A lot, or The only talking would be quoting along with the lines that we know. And I really just appreciated how well put together of a film it is. Yeah. Um, the the pacing is perfect. The world building is some of like the best in films. When you realize how how little we're told, but the way we're told, we feel like we are completely up to date in this world. Uh, we don't really know a lot about the rebellion or about the empire or why anybody's opposed to who. But by the end of it, we don't feel like we don't know that. Uh, and so the, the way the movie gives us information, the way it moves from... Uh, one act to the next. The characters are all fun. The dynamic is great. It's just, 
it's such an enjoyable movie. Um, so it really got me excited to, to keep moving through the series. And I, I believe that's your favorite, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. And the, the, one of the reasons you mentioned the pacing is well, I think it's, it's just a perfect little film. Aside from, you know, we could quibble with a, a performance or two, but just when you're looking at it structurally and how it's put together, it's, it's pretty perfect, I think. Yeah, and it's, it's got such a genuine sense of excitement and adventure throughout. Um, oh, yeah. It's just kind of hard to not love. Uh, and then obviously we watched Empire Strikes Back, which I, I kind of, I typically consider this one my favorite, although my top three are all almost interchangeable. They're, they're all pretty close. But for Empire, I just, I think it really, while it doesn't have like the perfect pacing that A New Hope had, um, we're not always kind of moving forward in exciting ways. It does stop and take the time to really advance the characters forward. There's a lot of great development. I think the performances are inarguably better across the board in this movie. Um, yeah. And they're all given a lot more depth this time. Uh, they kind of move outside of just becoming like these archetypes that one could argue that they kind of were in the first one to being fully fleshed out and realized characters in this. And the movie just does a lot of interesting things. It's, ambitious in a lot of different areas and uh there's just so much from like a filmmaking standpoint to, to respect about this movie um i think it's kind of earned its place as like the sequel to judge other sequels by yeah and then lastly uh i watched return of the jedi i haven't gotten to force awakens yet so we finished with return of the jedi and i i might have enjoyed this one um there, this may have been my most enjoyable viewing, kind of like how A New Hope was for me, but it's still like easily the worst of the of the original trilogy. <laughs> I, it's I think, especially watching it after having just recently watched A New Hope and Empire back to back, you kind of realize how weird this movie is put together. Like we we start off with like a an over thirty minute, almost episodic kind of story. That's irrelevant to the overall plot of the, you know, rebellion and the empire. And I mean, it's fun, but when you actually look at how their plan works in retrospect, it's there's almost no plan. It's <laughs> just a bunch of series of random events that led conveniently to something they could work themselves out of. Um, and then after that, we just are told, "Here's the next Death Star," and this is the 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 final plan. It, it feels like we move from one episode to the grand finale. It's, yeah. it's just it's just really, really weird. And then the pacing just kind of comes to a halt because it's okay, let's let's go to Endor and we get there. And we stay there for almost the rest of the movie. And aside from a really cool speeder chase and what what I consider the, the best space battle of the original trilogy, it's there's not really a lot going on other than just like we're introduced to the Ewoks, which who I don't hate themselves, but them beating the empire we all kind of know how silly that is and i don't know the movie just kind of gets to endor and in a lot of ways is boring and has our characters walking from one place to the other then to the other han solo almost ceases becoming an actual character and is reduced almost entirely to comedic relief um so i don't know it's i I'd still like it it's a it's really enjoyable to watch but 
it's got too many problems for me to love like I love the others. Yeah, it, it feels like they're really leaning very heavily into the serialized uh, adventure storytelling that kind of inspired Star Wars to begin with at, at the expense of some plot. And But the thing is that I really respect about that film is how completely perfectly it, it ends the arc of uh, Luke and Vader. I think everything with Luke and how that entire final confrontation happens set against a space battle is like as good as anything in any other Star Wars film. It's just there's also teddy bears beating up highly trained elite men in armor and the, yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's 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 a weird film but it's it's still very entertaining for its for its issues yeah and I, I like i said i still love watching it it's a lot of fun um and hopefully here in a couple of days we'll continue with the force awakens but that's that's what i've seen so far um and i'm if you're, if anyone listening is interested, I'm also writing a series where I, I rank them all in order from least favorite to favorite uh, over at Article Asylum. So if you want to see, I guess, more in-depth look at my thoughts on these movies, that's where you can find them. I have seen a, like a crap ton of films. I need to really speed through them. Uh, first off is The Foreigner. It's the new Jackie Chan, uh, Pierce Brosnan action thriller. Um, and it's, it's, I really, really liked it. It's, it's, Far more of a like a political thriller than the action film that the trailers kind of promised. However, it's a, I think it's a pretty darn good uh, thriller. I think uh, Pierce Brosnan uh, especially gives a really gripping performance. Um, it's it's kind of set in Ireland uh, against the backdrop of like the IRA and all the political machinations and unrest over there. I think it gives it paints a really interesting picture. Uh, Jackie Chan is also he's. He's actually not in the film as much as I thought he would be, but he also does give a very excellent uh, dramatic performance. And when he does kick people, it is, it's beautiful. It's, it's art. Uh, and Martin Campbell is an excellent action director. He did, uh, he did Casino Royale, uh, the two Zorro films, and GoldenEye. He's, just, he's really, really good at uh, staging exciting action sequences, and he knows when to pull back and just allow stuntmen or Jackie Chan to do what they do best. And when that happens, it's fantastic. I think the whole thing is very well paced and very well put together. It has, it's, I think there is a bit of a disconnect between the Jackie Chan action movie and the political thriller that's happening together. But still, both sides are very uh, enjoyable to watch. Yeah, that had been on my radar. I definitely want to see that. I was hoping... A lot of people say it's almost just taken with Jackie Chan, which... There are elements, you know, the retired... Uh, uh, op, you know, special forces operative coming back to kick butt, but there's a lot of other stuff going on too. Okay, I may end up seeing it hopefully this week. Actually, all right. And next, I saw Happy Death Day, which is the Groundhog Day teen slasher flick, which is actually quite entertaining. Um, it's definitely not great. You know, there's a lot of you know cliches and very kind of a heightened Mean Girls aesthetic to the whole thing. <laughs> But it's still, it's very, it's well directed. It's well written. The acting is excellent, especially the, from the lead Jessica Roth. Um, but it's just a very, it's, it's almost more of a comedy than a horror film. But it's just very, it's just a very entertaining watch. Um, don't have a lot to say about it outside of that. But yeah, it, it looked awful from the trailers. But you know, just any story can be good if you have someone who you know knows what they're doing and cares about it behind the camera. Nice. I I was actually kind of 
intrigued by the at least the first trailer. That's all the advertisement I had seen for it. But um, I've actually had it recommended by a couple people now, so it might be one I end up checking out. And uh, I've also continued my um, my weird journey through a bunch of, bunch of slasher films. Uh, so I saw Friday the 13th Part 2, which is just a pretty boring retread of, or almost like beat-for-beat beat retread of the first one um, without some of the, I think, without the charm, and it's not as tight. It's just, eh, it's fine. There's nothing, it's kind of boring. Um, I saw Halloween 2, which is interesting. Um, I, I thought it was, it's very smart in how it builds directly off the ending of the fir- first Halloween um, and I, I like that it, it keeps a very subdued tone. It tries very hard to mimic uh, Carpenter's style, but unfortunately it doesn't have John Carpenter behind the camera, so the, the craftsmanship just isn't there. So it kind of gets kind of kind of repetitive uh, towards the middle, and by the end it's just like, man, eh, that was fine, but it's it's not definitely not bad, and I, I like that it, uh, it took risks, but it's just, it just doesn't have that incredible um, vision behind the camera that the first one did. Uh, then I saw that I, since Halloween three is an anthology, I didn't check. I didn't I skipped that one and went to straight to Halloween four, the return of Michael Myers, uh, which is bleh, pretty, pretty pointless. Um, it does an interesting thing of like having a town under siege, uh, but the direction is just so bland. There's no, there's no tension. There's, it's never scary. The kills are incredibly dull. Um, however, the acting is definitely improved. The, um, you know the main girl and the the little girl she's guarding uh, are actually both really good actress actresses, um, and they I think they they really carry the film. I, it probably would have been unbearable with, with if it had like the actresses from the first film in there, but it, they made it watchable. And the uh, the guy who plays the the doctor Loomis I forget his name, but he's he's all he's having a lot of fun too. Um, then I saw the Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master. Uh, which is directed by Rennie Harlan, who's got a lot of 90s action films under his belt. Uh, not never great ones, but he's always he's usually kind of solid. Uh, and actually, I think this one it kind of abandons all pretense of being a horror film. Instead, he directs it like a slick 80s action film, and it's it's actually kind of fun. There's there isn't really much of a plot. It's just kind of a series of like really incredibly uh, well. Uh, imaginative and creative uh, dream sequences that are really, really nicely put together, um, and it's it's just it, it's just entertaining. Um, the acting is still ridiculous, and the characters don't mean nothing. And f- by this time, Freddy isn't even trying to be scary, but he's just a lot of fun to watch with uh, Robert England playing him. Uh, I think it's it's the most polished of them all. It it, it actually looks like a real movie, not just a, a low budget horror film. But, I mean, it, it, there's nothing terribly special about it other than just being entertaining. Uh, and then I saw The Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. Oh, this movie is terrible. It's so bad. Um, the direction is just completely limp and stilted. Or it's either, like, bo- completely boring or, like, ridiculously cartoonish to the point where it's just kind of you feel embarrassed for the director while watching it. Um, the acting is the worst probably of all these three different franchises I've been watching through so far. Uh, You know, that's saying a lot by 80 slasher film standards. Uh, And, you know, it's just, it's so pointless. The plot makes no sense, which 
I mean, none the plots have never made sense, but this this is even more insulting. Uh, I, I I really can't think of a single positive thing to say about this film. Uh, but maybe there are the camera was occasionally in focus, but <laughs> it's yeah, it, it it really it almost like destroyed my will to continue on this uh, slasher marathon I've been doing. It's just. It was like I was like depressed for a, an hour afterwards. Like I don't even want to keep watching movies anymore. That completely sapped all, all the joy out of it. Is uh, that the one with like a baby Freddy crawling around? Yes, it is. Oh yeah, that's all I remember about it. <laughs> that's about what my mind has saved from that movie. You're fortunate. Oh, okay. Also, well, that's all I've seen. Us. Is there anything else you want to mention before we move into the main review? Uh, I think I'm ready. All right. Let's begin our review of Saw. Saw was released in 2004. It was directed by James Wan on a budget of 1.2 million, and it grossed 103 million. That's 100 times its production cost, which is incredible. No wonder they made seven or was it seven more sequels or is it eight now? I think it's eight now with a jigsaw coming out. <laughs> a, a lot. Uh, it stars Carrie Elwes, Lee Wanell, Danny Glover, Michael Emerson, Monica Potter, Mackenzie Vega. Ken Leung and Tobin Bell. It was written by Lee Wanell and it was shot by David A. Armstrong and the score is composed by Charlie Clauser. And I'm going to get you to read a synopsis, James. Two strangers awaken in a room with no recollection of how they got there or why and soon discover they are pawns in a deadly game perpetrated by a notorious serial killer. Uh, James, why don't you tell us why you wanted to bring this on the show? I mean, I know it's normally about good films, so why did you bring uh... this one on? Well, because it's about good films, I thought, you know what's a good film? Saw. And so, uh, it had actually been a while since I've seen it, and I remember seeing your review after uh, <laughs> after um, you, had, you had recently watched it and you had seen it before me for this episode, and I was like, oh no, am I just remembering things wrong? But I, I having watched it only yesterday, I actually really enjoyed it still. Um, and I think it's because of one of the things that you mentioned earlier, which is the setting. I I really like the way this movie looks and feels. It's just really grungy and dirty, and it feels appropriate to what it's about. Um, and I like that it's it's just focused on these two characters. You know, there's there's always victims in these serial killer kind of movies, and it but the movie itself is almost primarily just about like the investigation into the serial killer and so it was cool to see a movie that focused on the actual victim uh or in this case victims of the killer and to see what the process was actually like kind of outside of just the investigation into him and so i think it does a lot of creative things especially for being made on such a low budget uh i just think there's a lot to like about this movie in spite of it definitely being imperfect yeah this this is kind of weird for me because this I think this is the first time film that has been brought onto our show that I actually hang on. I didn't like Prince of Persia. But it's been a while since we had a film on that I actively disliked. Um and it it makes it weird for me because this show is definitely about, you know, celebrating good films. So this is gonna be an interesting review. Um I guess to, you know, to start off on the things I did enjoy again. I think the way the setting is used is pretty effective. I mean, you can definitely tell that James Wan 
has talent, uh, and especially in how the film is paced, uh, I think that's probably my biggest praise for the film is that it's never boring, um, which could it so easily could have been just utterly mind-numbingly boring. You know, these two men stuck in a in a single room. I mean, there are so so many ways where it could have been bad, but I like the way um, Juan and the editor, you know, pace out the different flashbacks. Uh, throughout the, the the story feels very organic and it just keeps the film moving in a way that is actually quite engaging um and so for whatever i dislike about the film it never it never bored me and that's definitely a praise i uh i can give it yeah to me there's something really smart about the way the whole the room itself was put together um and i, I like the uses of uh the usage of flashbacks in it and something that I think, and this is actually what I had in my notes, is one of the ways that I think the pacing is really helped is how he separates flashbacks and how he separates the discovery of clues. The room is the same start to finish. It's not like Jigsaw or, or in this case, you know, spoiler alert, Zep is he's not feeding them clues actively. They wake up in the same room that it ends in and he, there's nothing new introduced but they that, the way they discover it works not just in terms of pacing and that it's not all at once or not all the way until the end it it elevates and kind of adds to the intrigue as the movie goes uh goes along in a way that is exactly like you said it you, you're never bored because they're always discovering something that they didn't know beforehand but it also works because it feels realistic. Uh, it, it almost reminded me of like a video game where you, you go to a place and there's, you know that there's loads of different things to discover there and you slowly like it, you know, examine the environment and learn more and more about the story. And that's kind of what they did here. Uh, the, the X, you know, as, as they discovered on the wall after, or they find it because of having the light turned on. Um, the the wallet that clue was always in there, but just because it had never come up until towards the end, that's a clue that they spend most of their time in there without knowing for that length and and you know discovering the the saws and the in the toilet. There's just there, everything has always been in there, but they discover it in a way that just feels really organic, and the way that they pace them apart from each other just it helps the flow of the film. And then before anything in the room does get boring we do get to see flashbacks that flesh these characters out. And then when we jump back into the room, we kind of are able to look at them in a new light and we know, we understand more about them. So just the, the way that the story itself is told outside of the room to flesh out these characters, as well as the way they, they discover more things within there, it just keeps the movie always moving forward in a way that I think is a uh, really impressive for a directorial debut. Yeah, um, and it it's you know it sounds like that under normal circumstances having a movie where I'd say a third to possibly half of it is told through flashbacks, it sounds like you know pretty bad storytelling. Um, but I I think it, you know it's employed in a way that you know just as we're kind of getting tired of this one setting, it, it'll whip us out and give us some much needed backstory to the case or the, the who this killer is or who these characters were beforehand, which always feels like he provides you know pertinent information to where they are at that time in the room um so yeah it, it's something that could have so easily become really irritating but i think is 
is uh, put to a good use uh, in a way that definitely um, strengthens the overall story. And and something else that I uh, that I liked about the movie itself was the dynamic between the two lead characters. I, I know that Elways gives a he kind of goes <laughs> overboard towards the end of the movie. I think a lot of it is he just has a lot of difficulty keeping his accent. It's even noticeable sometimes when he's just speaking, but not enough so that it really takes me out of it. But towards the end, when he's meant to be screaming in pure rage and emotion while trying to maintain this American accent, it doesn't really go over well. But before that, during the bulk of the movie, I actually think that both he and Lee uh, Winnell do pretty good. Um... what I like about their relationship and this dynamic is that it feels uncinematic in kind of the best way. Um, you can't really track all of these plot beats that others might try to like, I don't know, stick too closely to. It more like, it, it feels more as if these are just two regular people who woke up in a room like this. They're they're not undergoing these, these big art, although Carrie Elwes certainly does get an arc their interaction with each other feels very genuine and unscripted. Um, They're initially very um, cynical of each other and their motives and very um, hesitant to trust each other. And then even as they do begin to trust each other, there's always kind of this sense of unease. Like naturally, if if we're going to be stuck in this room for this extended period of time, we're going to try to, you know, speak to each other on a more friendly in a more friendly kind of way, but it's never like, okay, well now we're working together. We're the two protagonists and we're going to be friends. It's, it feels like I said, just two people trying to work to the best of the ability of their abilities to remain calm and work with each other while being completely confused in this situation. And, uh, I, I completely buy that they really have no idea what's going on and they're just trying to figure this out as they go. Yeah, the, the aspect of you know where, in order to get out, uh, uh, Lawrence, right? It's, yeah, Lawrence has to kill Adam. Um, is it really? Well, it's kind of cool because like, as other clues come out, like when he gets the picture, yeah, obviously he's gonna hide it because all that picture is is incentive for Lawrence to kill him. Um, and I thought you know, that that was a, a you know kind of interesting moral twist that was thrown in there. I think it's kind of wasted later on. I think there are a couple of you know, interesting ideas like that that were sprinkled through that, you know, that while you know, morally questionable, made sense, you know, for the characters to do in that moment. Yeah, there's, there is a sense of growth in terms of the way they, they think of each other. And I, I like that... At, when he first discovers, you know, you you must kill him to live. That's not immediately what he goes. It's like, okay, well, I guess this is what I got to do. Um, at first, they behave as rational people. Like, okay, well, this might be a joke. I don't know what's going on. Let's look around. And you can kind of see their decline as the movie goes on. Um, part of it, you know, it's just desperation as we get close to the, the clock and they they don't it's not like they go insane but you can see like the mental wear and tear that this this situation has had on to where 
No, I'm, he hides the picture, and then, um, you know, he he dips the cigarette in blood, only to say, you know, then to decide actually we're gonna we're gonna fool whoever's watching us, and it it's it, I'm just essentially repeating what I had said earlier, but I I do like how they behave realistically, some like often rationally, and then even when they don't, you know do what the smart decision in the moment might be they're kind of behaving in ways that feel realistic even if not intelligent uh i just think there's a real sense of believability in this situation yeah um i guess you know going back to the performances i'm not sure what happened to carrie elwes <laughs> you mentioned the accent but i actually quite liked him when he was playing, you know, the you know the, the intelligent, methodical, highly logical doctor who's just trying to figure out the situation, trying to stay calm, trying to get the other guy to work with him. I thought he was decent there. But, you know, whenever he has to portray any kind of high emotion, be it you know, anger, terror, pain, he's terrible. He's really, really terrible. And I don't know. It was it's it's like really sad to watch, um, yeah, because it's it's really really not good, <laughs> especially towards the end. You know, after he's cut off his foot, it doesn't help that the makeup they put on him to look pale is like horrible. <laughs> so you just as you know this thing's winding up for a climax and you're supposed to be really intense. You're just kind of laughing at the screen because his performance is terrible, the makeup's terrible, and it just doesn't work. Um, and I had heard before that. Uh, Lee Waddell was actually terrible um, as Adam, but it, I actually found him, him to be far better you know, in the in the scenes you know of, of where he were at, at, you know portraying terror <laughs> than uh, Carrie Elwes was, which was was rather surprising. Yeah, I, honestly, the makeup itself wasn't what bothered me so much in that situation. Was I feel like it kind of came out of nowhere, where it's like you didn't look like and and i get he he just kind of he well not kind of he had cut his foot off only just previously but then he turns and it it's very visible that you know it's obviously just applied and it's made to look like he's pale but it was kind of funny to see him looking fairly normal and then he crawls over there and it's like you can tell that there was at least 10 minutes spent in the makeup chair between this footage right here and this footage right here um so that, yeah, it's and it's unfortunate that it comes at the climax of the film, but I I think when he's not yelling at um, Zepp as he's in the room, I I wasn't so bothered by the rest of his performance as he's saying you're like I, I will come back I I have to do this but I'll 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 make sure to come back for you. I mean it's a bit overacted, but it's hard for me to really give a solid criticism of that just because of how like the situation like what the situation actually is he's a he's a man who has just cut his foot off and is now having to crawl to safety in a from a room that he has no idea where he's in and his sanity at this point has started to go down a little bit he's been confined in a singular room all day chained up and has now lost you know an excessive amount of blood so i, I felt like outside like i said outside of him yelling at zip as he enters the room when he's actually trying to comfort Adam, it felt believable enough. Um, and then with Adam, I actually do think 
Lee Winnell gave a very believable performance as well. It felt very natural in my opinion. Like he was, he's just this guy. He's, you know, definitely not the stand-up guy by any means, but he wasn't trying to, he never felt like he was overacting. And then in the scenes of terror, when he's meant to, you know, when he's, he's screaming at the top of his lungs, especially at the end, it, you can even look in his eyes and it feels like this guy's fearing for his life right now. Or whenever he has the gun pointed on him and he's just saying the most basic thing he could say in the moment. Like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to like, and he's screaming it. It feels believable. It feels like a guy who is staring death in the face and he's not giving this long-winded speech about why he doesn't want to die. It's He's just screaming the most, his most, the most basic idea he has in his mind at the top of his lung. And it felt very real to me. Yeah. Um, as far as the rest of the cast, um, Dan, Danny Glover is, is good. I, I didn't notice anything particularly great, but he, I mean, he, he's a, always a solid actor. Um, did any of the, uh, the other cast members stand out to you? Like I thought his wife was kind of terrible, uh, but you know, she's not, she's not on screen all that much. I didn't think that the the wife was really terrible. I don't think she really was in a position where she could really just give an overtly bad performance. Um, though I actually did like the scene uh, where she and the daughter are tied together because it it felt very genuine, like this mother trying to calm down her daughter, looking at her saying things that she knows might not even be true, but she's like, I'm not going to let him touch you. I'm, nothing's going to happen. Don't worry. And there's something heartbreaking about it, like seeing this little girl gagged and bound with very believable tears running down her cheeks. Uh, it To me, it worked in raising the stakes because we have faces to these victims. And in specifically in that moment, it was just incredibly genuine looking fear and terror in the eyes of this mother and daughter who have no idea what's going on. So outside of that scene, to me, neither did anything to make me, you know, really enjoy their performance or hate their performance. But I I think within that scene, they actually do pretty well. Yeah. That that scene is effective, which I think might lead to some of my annoyance with the film later, but, uh, as far as far as you know, yeah, the filmmaking itself, I think Wong's direction is mostly fine. I think it's kind of ugly, uh, probably intentionally. But there are there are a couple like really I think cl- clever moments. But overall, I wasn't terribly impressed with the action. It was never, it mostly wasn't bad. There were a couple like stylistic flourishes, like the camera fast forwarding uh, whilst uh, circling around them was kind of ridiculous. Uh, and just some of his over like over the top touches just felt kind of annoying, but overall it was it was solid and you know de- not bad for a debut film. Yeah, to me it seemed like he was almost trying to do things that just weren't he he just wasn't capable of within that situation when he didn't have the budget to do it. So I'm really torn on the whole fast forwarding effect because there are certain moments where I think it actually works quite well uh and it's it kind of gets us in the frantic headspace of the person where it's you know you have one minute to decide on something and it seems like time is moving at like you know 10 seconds is now a second it just feels like in the moment everything nothing you do is going to be fast enough and you just 
panic and you shake and for the the camera to almost mimic that sense of um, frantic urgency and panic uh, it kind of works sometimes uh, <laughs> in, in the scene of it moving around her I thought it looked a bit ridiculous and you can kind of tell that you know the camera and the equipment everything that they're using this film isn't like wasn't bought off of the highest budget but the the only scene that used it where I'm like this just kind of looks kind of silly is in the scene in which Danny Glover is chasing uh, Michael Emerson and they're they're both in the cars so it's essentially a car chase but it just consists of a sped up view of them behind the wheel just mildly turning and looking around like their heads kind of look left and right they're they're steering but there's nothing really exciting but the camera thinks it's incredibly <laughs> exciting and it's doing this fast forward effect cut 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 between the two and the camera is planted firmly on the hood of both cars it's not moving around or anything so we're we're literally just seeing about a minute's worth of them driving sped up to about 15 seconds of just really weird cuts between the two um as if there's a lot of tension it felt like a scene from like the first stuff the races in the first fast and furious film yeah just super weird where the camera is con- like more convinced of the excitement of the scene than the audience is um so that that was the scene in which that kind of that technique that he uses in this was kind of poorly utilized yeah um i guess we should probably move on to what i think real my biggest issue with this film is this this movie really wants really really badly to be seven <laughs> the direction you know the way the murder scenes are shot it's it's very intentionally, you know, crafted to mimic seven. Um, and I had a, I, I almost hate seven. I, I acknowledge it's a masterpiece, but that, that that's why I can't completely hate it. This film is not a masterpiece. Um, and I, it's honestly even more sick and twisted than seven is. And for me, if a film is going to drag me through that, I mean, number one, it has to be, you know, exceptionally well made, um, you know, justifying my time spent on it. And this really isn't. It's it's mostly competent. Um, but and but even more importantly, it has to mean something. It has to, you know, it has to have to have something like remotely interesting to say, uh, uh, you know, about the darkness it's wading through. And you know, if a film just you know dwells on evil and just suffering, you know, have a reason. And I don't think this film has any idea or reason behind it. And I think the climax fails both from any kind of moral and like an intellectual perspective, but also just from a plain filmmaking perspective. I don't think it works. Like logistically, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know, the acting gets laughable, and there's multiple scenes, you know, where the characters have a chance to kill the villain, and they don't. And the scenes like that just keep adding up and adding up to where it's just like this guy should have been dead seven scenes ago, but and they keep letting him go. They just keep, it's just really frustrating to watch when characters keep making more and more stupid choices to the point where you just you are become so aware that you're watching a movie that the director wants you to get to a certain place, but isn't putting in the uh, isn't you know building us up to that moment properly. Uh 
And I guess just to go into the logistics of the ending that make no sense to me, is that, I mean, first off, you know, we have the final reveal that Zepp isn't actually the mastermind, which then makes his previous actions where he's very clearly acting like a psychopath <laughs> earlier on in the film make no sense if he's just also a victim who's just scared for his life. It doesn't work. Um, and also, why is Zepp in this game? We are never, like, it seems that Jigsaw is picking people who have a particular sin or, or a fault and then crafting their uh, their trap around that fault. Here, I, I, mean, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why he picked him and, or why he's here. Uh, so that doesn't make sense. And then, in the end, I mean, first off, having Jigsaw be the dead body is so stupid. I mean, they, I mean, how, they would have seen the dead guy breathing at one point or another during these whatever, six hours they were in there. And, so, and then it makes no sense for him to be the dead body. What advantages does that give him? I mean, it, it, it gives you a decent, oh, wow, moment. But then you're like, yeah, that makes no sense. Why would any of this happen? Um, and thirdly, when it finally goes down and he closes the door, it's supposed to be this moment of utter despair, except for we know that Adam has a gun and we know that Lawrence has escaped. Both those threads are left dangling, even though the ending is supposed to be like this climaxing finality. Instead, I'm just thinking, get the gun, shoot off your chain, escape. It, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work logistically. Like there's these threads that are completely left dangling that are that the, we have been working towards the entire film. I don't know, it, it was just, it's incredibly frustrating. Uh, and again, intellectually and morally. I see no point to any of this because why exactly was Adam there earlier on? It, it seemed to seem like he was this voyeur, except for we learned later on. No, he's kind of like a private eye. <sighs> why? Why isn't he this happening? <laughs> so I, I think, I mean, you're definitely right in that it's definitely taking a lot of um, inspiration from seven and it wants to fall in that genre as well. Uh when you ask, like, what's the whole point? I think the point is almost the exact same as Seven. It's a, it's a villain who feels morally superior to others, and in this one, the the whole idea is humanity or people will appreciate their life more when seen with the prospect of like when being in a situation where losing it is um, you know, is is on the table. I think it's mostly displayed in the, in the scene where the guy's cutting his wrist either to die or for attention or for whatever. And the idea is, you know, you cut yourself supposedly to die. Would you cut yourself to live? Do you value your life? Um, and so I, I do think there's an interesting element of I'm going to, I'm going to benefit these people. If they don't want to live, then they won't. But if they do, they will fight for it and be more appreciative in the long run. And while it's it's kind of a, a, a bit of a stretch, whenever the, the girl initially, Amanda, she says, he did help me. Like, she's not an addict anymore. She doesn't look at it the same. I mean, yes, it's because the movie kind of wants to prove Jigsaw's point. Um, or at least have the uh, 
have our characters understand at least his motivation. But there is a certain element. You can understand how he would do this and see results like Amanda and in his own sick and twisted way feel, see, I am doing good work. By killing innocent wives and children. and like At least with, uh, with uh, John Doe in Seven, there was there was very little to no collateral damage. Nobody had, he didn't kill the cop when he could have. This, this is just like the he's supposed to be this moral uh this guy who's doing it for moral reasons, and yet he's just like killing anyone and everyone. Not only not, not even people who get in his way, just people any people he decides they need to die for whatever he wants to do. I, I think. They're fairly comparable. The, we see, I mean, the most uh, iconic scene from Seven is about collateral damage. Well, yeah, um, but that that was to earn the death penalty for himself, you know. Yeah, but at at the end, he, he was there was a victim who came at the cost of his own idea. Like he had an idea, and he was trying to work accordingly. And in order for that to happen, there was collateral damage. Uh, and I think it's almost a a fairly similar situation here in which they're both characters in seven and in saw are hypocritical in that in order for them to succeed, they're having to act in a way that opposes their supposed, you know, moral position. Uh, and, and I don't think that's an inconsistency in the movie. I think that's an inconsistency in the character. And I think that's meant to be there. Uh, my only complaint with the whole, the motivation behind the victims is, with a Zep, and I don't, I'm not even thinking there there isn't one. I just think it it should have been explained. Um, I I don't. I mean, he he acted strangely before, but I don't think he ever acted like a a psycho in any scene. He was like waving at the camera. Hey guys, Remember the opening. Oh, that's right. But he he's he, very clearly a psychopath. He's he's a messed up, but perhaps. His um, the fact that he's a psychopath. Who knows what he's done? I, I think that there is a reason out there somewhere. It, it's not a stretch to think that this, there is some reason he's in this position. But I think, for the film to put him in that position, it also, it's it's on the film to tell us why, um, and the fact that it doesn't. I don't. I don't think we needed to learn more about what his personal game was. I think we were given enough about that. And I think the idea that the supposed villain of the movie is also a victim. It was a, It's a cool idea, but for it to be more effective, we should have been understanding who he was more. And as a character, he was pretty shallow. But with, with Adam, I think the idea was that he, he made a profit and earned a living off of exposing the sins of others in in a way that wasn't for the moral sake of it. And he even says, I couldn't care less what you're doing. I'm only there to take these pictures. And he would probably sell them to whoever. So just this idea that he he lives by capitalizing off of the sins of others makes him just as sinful in Jigsaw's mind. And And I understand the inconsistency of that argument, but like I said, I don't think that's an inconsistency in the movie. I just think that's a serial killer not even realizing his own hypocrisy. But then why is he here? What is this supposed to do for him? What is his lesson to learn? 
I don't think the every every single I don't I don't know what you call it situation the victims find themselves in. I don't think they always relate to your specific sin. The idea is you face death. You're told what your sin was. If you fight hard enough to escape, you've been made aware of your sin and will live differently now. Like even the Amanda in the beginning with the whole reverse bear trap that didn't necessarily have anything to do with her own addiction. But the idea was that Jigsaw very forcefully pointed her, focused her attention on what her problem was and put her in a situation in which her life was on the line and having made made it through that and understanding that that situation was a direct result of her sin, she would now live differently and be changed by that. So it's almost the exact same reasoning with him. He's He got himself into that situation. Well, I say got himself. He's, obviously, that's not something that happens typically. But he was there because of this specific sin of his. And if he makes it out, he can no longer pretend he's blind to his to his problems or to his sinful career as Jigsaw sees it. Is his career sinful, though? I mean, shouldn't people who are cheating on their wives be exposed? The thing is, I think, yes. And I think Jigsaw doesn't have necessarily a problem with the the concept or the idea of exposing sins. But I think in his mind, it's what I'm doing is for the betterment of people. I'm I'm not just doing this for a living. I'm doing it in... And I, I, I can acknowledge how flawed his logic is, but I think it's meant to be flawed. He, he is the antagonist. And in his mind, he's taking this very messed up moral, like supposedly morally superior position in which we're both exposing and uncovering the sins, but you do it for the sake of profit. You, like, he doesn't want people to be this way anymore, whereas Adam kind of requires people this way so he can make money off of them. And I can buy how someone as messed up as as it would take to create these contraptions in the first place can look at someone like that and think, oh, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm doing it for the right reason. This guy isn't, and I'm going to show him why he isn't. I'm not buying it. No. <laughs> uh, and, okay, secondly, why is Lawrence here? Like originally, it seemed to be because he was cheating on his wife, but then we then he, but then he screams out, "No, I wasn't cheating on her." So was that was that? Are we supposed to take that to mean that this was his first time meeting his secretary receptionist lady? In which case, it seems odd because it seems like the entire thing setup seems to be that this is something they've been doing for a while. It doesn't seem like this is their first time meeting. I don't know. Was he lying about not cheating on her? Like when he got, when he kind of seemed to regret it and left, that he never actually went through with it. In which case, how would Jigsaw know he's cheating because he's never actually done it before? Yeah, that part. I guess as a patient, the whole point of Jigsaw being a patient is so that we could buy the fact that he's there to see things like that, regardless. Of whether it's happened on multiple occasions, perhaps like the flirtation had been happening for a while, and he he overhears, regardless of whether he's cheated on multiple occasions or not, we know their marriage wasn't in good shape to begin with, with her saying, I 
I almost wish you would do this, you, you know, or you would yell at me or say you hate me or whatever. I can't remember what her line is, but at if least you there'd did, be some passion yeah. behind it. Yeah, like so, his marriage is already pretty messy, and he's doesn't seem to be perfect as a husband or father, um, and as a patient who perhaps like maybe. <laughs> Apparently he's really good at making you think he's not there. So maybe he's he's just overhears things and understands things and thinks this would be a good person to try this out on first. Okay, and uh, why did he need to be inside the cell with them? And how did they not see him breathing? <laughs> that's That's my biggest issue with the movie is that I think the idea would be, and this is done by... I think the movie over explains itself. And that montage at the end with, I, I like the idea. Once we're revealed that Zepp is playing the game, I'm like, oh, okay. And then I remember thinking, oh, that, that makes sense. Because when asked, why are you doing this? He said, oh, no, it's it's a part of the rule or it's against the rules. And so I was like, I kind of had this, okay, I get that now. And then the movie points at the, or does an instant rewind and then has him say, it's against the rules. So the movie is like, it, it, it's thinking that the audience isn't as smart as as we can be and so it's kind of explaining everything and so during that montage we see him dead on the floor and then we hear the line from the flashback uh when they are examining the first body saying uh he all we found multiple we're always finding peepholes or some way in which he's examining this it's like he wants front row seats to his own game well, and he so, couldn't see it because he had to lay still with his eyes closed. <laughs> exactly, which is why it's there's really no reason that there's not a peephole here when there was. Um, and this is really putting himself at a disadvantage to say Zep does have crisis of conscience. They rescue them, and now the cops roll him over, and he's still alive. So, and he has blood makeup. It's it makes no sense. I. <laughs> The ending is always something that I've never been a fan of. Um, the whole reason that I do enjoy this movie even still is I like the build-up just until the end. Uh, the twist kind of only works for the first movie, and then after you're like, oh, it was him the whole time. Exactly what you said earlier, you're like, wait, what? Why? Um, and so, yeah, there's. I, I really think that the whole twist ending was conceived of first and then when it got to the why of it like I, I don't know he just wants to be there it's a cool twist that's that's all the thought process that was put into it um so yeah there's i'm i don't even have a lot of the answer as someone who really enjoys this movie I, I don't have a lot of the answers as to why the ending plays out the way it does and uh things like that yeah the, the body being there doesn't make a whole lot of sense Okay, and lastly, what is this supposed to mean or say? What it why is is what portion of Jigsaw's worldview is that supposed to confirm? What or what or what sin is is being punished? Because the ending is supposed to leave us completely hopeless, and it's like yeah. And so, my question is why the film has seemed to have some kind of more, uh, at least facade of intellectualism or morality behind it. I just don't see where that ending com comes in. I mean, for me, it seems to be like basically the, you know, the cinematic equivalent of uh, being kicked in the balls. And I just say, well, F you too, back to the film, because why would you do that to me? 
I don't. If you're if you're just gonna torture me, I'm not gonna reward you. I think that there's that one. The ending, and this is where Seven is definitely the the better movie, because that movie wasn't appealing to any specific group of people other than just people who appreciate good good filmmaking. Whereas this one felt a little bit more like, well, this is the horror genre. You know, whether it's the stupid ending from Nightmare on Elm Street or Jason being alive, the very last frame of Friday the 13th, where the whole, everything that, and this is, this is a genuine problem I have with the entire genre, or at least huge portions of the genre that always do this, where it seems as if the whole point of the movie is just kind of shrugged off for the sake of, oh, well, we, we have to have this ending, you know. We can't just have them beat Freddy. He has to pull the mom through the window in a stupid-looking way. And we can't have Jigsaw get caught. He has to close the door on our, like, our, one of our protagonists. It, it does feel as if, regardless of what the movie was saying, we just we have to end it like this. This is what these kind of movies do. Um, and so, you know, like like I said... Uh, I am a defender of the movie in general, but not of the ending, because I, I think in the ending is where the movie shows most of its faults, and that Seven was conceived of because it had this interesting idea behind what, like, the motivations of a villain. Whereas this one, and I think even Lee Whannell, uh was saying, like, yeah, we, we thought of Seven, and we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we told this a story similarly but from the perspective of the victims as opposed to the investigation. So Seven was born out of this desire to tell this kind of story about a villain. Saw was, in a lot of ways, born out of a desire to tell that same story, but from a different perspective. So when it comes to the end, and it comes to actually giving it a definitive statement on it, Seven could give a definitive statement or something akin to one, because that was the idea all along. Whereas when Saw is asked, well, what is this all about? The truthful answer is we just wanted to to make a movie like Seven, and so they kind of relied on the endings of the genre. Yeah, which I guess to, to, for me is that not only is this a, a profoundly unpleasant experience, like from a moral intellectual pr- perspective, I don't see what kind of value this film brings to the world to just you know revel in human suffering and to to end on it on something so incredibly dark with nothing to say about it. It just, I don't know, it just it seems just rather disgusting to me. I don't, I don't see what purpose or need in the world does this, a film like this fulfill. <laughs> You're really going to hate the other entries in the genre then. I know, <laughs> which is why I will never watch them. I mean, I, I, can, I, mean, I guess a sadist could enjoy this film, in which case I don't see how that's a, a valuable uh, segment of society to entertain. <laughs> I think it's, a, it's just another entry into a genre that, that a lot of people, myself included, kind of enjoy. Of this, the, the serial killer, the, the flawed superiority complex that a serial killer might have, or, you know, movies like Zodiac, where there, there's just something fun or no i say fun but there's something interesting and intriguing and compelling about the 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 whole situation of the idea of a killer and what his motivations might be 
and what what this situation is like from the perspective of victims, what it's like to see the investigation into it, whether it's saying anything intellectually or morally isn't irrelevant, but that's not why we're here. We're here because... Because you're a bunch of sadists. Because it's interesting. There's, There's something undeniably intriguing about the idea. I mean, after I watched Zodiac, I spent like two hours looking up everything there was to know about the case online. It's the situations themselves are just interesting there and and so to see to see a prolonged look at what victims of it might experience or or why someone might do this or what it would be like to essentially lose your lead suspect and just go crazy because of unanswered you know questions and it, the case goes cold it's just a look at a situation like this from multiple different angles and like i said it's it, Having nothing definitive to say certainly isn't irrelevant to it, but it's also not why I went out and saw or watched Saw for the first time. It's just because it's an interesting premise, and it's done in a way that hasn't really been done by other films, by focusing on the people in the situation as opposed to the people reacting to the situation. Which I guess that brings me just some of my... my moral intellectual objections with certain segments of film is that, at least the way i see it is you know film or film or art in general is you know, a way of expressing ourselves you know or uh you know t- telling stories of like learning lessons you know bringing in themes and or simply entertaining in this case the elements of the human psyche that are entertained by this are probably parts that shouldn't be entertained <laughs> and I just don't. I don't see how this a film like this, with nothing meaningful to say, brings anything of value to the world's conversation or to art. And to, what benefit does this give the world? It's entertaining. Okay. <laughs> Not really. Whatever. Um, so you got anything else you want to mention? Uh I, we've talked about most of the substance like of what the film actually is and things like that, but uh, I guess the last thing that I would bring up is I think that while it's not overtly scary, um, there are a couple of moments in which you can see this director becoming the guy who directs things like insidious in the conjuring he does things in kind of creative ways whether it's you know discovering someone leaving the car through a mirror or um, using the flash on a camera to look around your apartment for an intruder there are different moments and and, then you know finding a giggling doll or seeing it ride down on this this bike to relay information you can kind of see someone who is very interested in different ways to scare people. Um, and as someone who enjoys watching movies that scare me, it's, it is kind of cool to see the most early version of this director doing that. Uh, and so there are, there are a couple scenes that I think are actually pretty cool like that. I guess one final prayer that I do have for this film is I think uh, James Wan does employ a very admirable amount of restraint in how the violence and gore is handled. 
it's actually fairly tame as far as you know what is actually shown from like a gore and horror perspective. I think there are a lot of scenes that he shows that he films in interesting ways to 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 avoid just like um reveling in the blood and guts uh that i i, I definitely respected yeah I, I think that's partly because based on his filmography he doesn't seem like the kind of person who is there because he has that one hook that'll bring people like having seen too many of the saw entries that i would care to he definitely does not seem like the director who would go on to create these. He's more interested in the actual craft, the idea of the the setup and the characters in the situations and advancing their stories and the conversations they have with each other and the dynamic and layering on extra clues and trying to be an interesting filmmaker with the budget he has. He he just seems more interested in the actual craft, which might be why why the ending kind of suffers in giving any sort of statement he he's he's really there just to try to be a director and to try to do interesting things and um create environments that hide its low budget and uses camera in ways that other people aren't using like you watch through the conjuring movies uh and there are some just really cool ways he plays with the camera that other people just don't uh, and i think you can see the beginnings of that here uh and part of that is the restraint where he's he knows he doesn't have to just throw buckets of blood at the screen just to have somebody watch the movie. It's it's more about the actual craft. All right. Uh, so is there anything else you want to mention before we move into our final thoughts? Uh, I think that's it. All right. Um, so I guess to end on a positive note, I'll start. Um, <laughs> I kind of got through a lot of my final thoughts, my last rant. Uh, I guess just to... I, I don't like disliking things and it really doesn't bring me much pleasure to rip on a film, especially on a, a podcast like this that is designed to you know, praise films we like. Um, so I hope you don't hate me if you're a fan of this show, of this of this film. Um, but I guess for my final thoughts, it's just I don't... I don't think this film really works just on a purely... outside of my moral and intellectual problems with it. I don't think it it works logistically. Like... I think there are some very serious flaws throughout the film, and especially I think they like a whole bunch of them add up at the climax, which just which just leaves you completely unsatisfied and irritated more than anything in the end. Um, and then I, I you know I've spent a while talking about just I I don't see this film bring anything of value to the world. Uh, so yeah, I, I I don't really like it. Uh, how about you, James? Well, I like it. Uh, I think in terms of what it's saying, it's it's piggybacking off of the moral lesson of Seven. Like, I'm pretty sure they would just like to take uh, Morgan Freeman's last line from that movie and stamp it on this one and say they did something. But that line wouldn't work in the, the way this film ends. I know, because they, <laughs> because at the same time, they're also trying to just belong in the genre by giving it this ending. Um, but I, I still think that outside of almost all of my problems i don't i don't really have as many of the logistical issues as you and i mean with the whole idea that there's there were time after time in which they could have stopped the villain i i really only remember the once and i remember thinking i mean yeah it's a stretch but at the same time it's a movie when he had him on his knees 
and for him to turn like to quickly move with this knife that nobody knew he had. Or when the wife took Zap's gun and then allowed him to grab it back. But there's, I don't, I just think that's that's believable to be distracted in a moment. You, you're a character who is. That's why you double tap. <laughs> that, that that but you can. It's easier to say that in retrospect when you have the other character who's at gunpoint, who is literally looking at looking for any flinch, any sign of something to to capitalize on, and you have someone else who's almost scared that they're in this position because you can lose it and is almost in a position in which you're more likely to make a mistake because you have you you have the power that you can lose whereas the other person is entirely focused on that so i mean people make mistakes in this movie but in my opinion almost all of them are believable i think the idea that a character messing up is inherently flawed i don't know, i th- i think that especially after having listened to uh, the podcast over uh the film hush and they they interviewed a lot of people who are actually in these crazy situations. They're like, a lot of the time in movies when they're dropping their keys to their car or they're tripping over things that they should trip over, as much as we laugh at them, that's kind of what happens. You you become a bumbling idiot in situations like that. Um, so I didn't have so many of those problems. And my biggest problem is just the idea that its twist ending doesn't really make a lot of sense in retrospect. But as a film, watching it, I enjoy, I enjoy the ride itself. If I don't, even if I don't enjoy the payoff quite so much, the idea of an entire movie almost being set—at least the the story proper of a movie being set in a singular room and having that room, or having the clues of the room being discovered, and slowly you discover there's things in the toilet there's a camera watching there's there's all these things the the room actually becomes more interesting as the movie moves on and utilizing so many flashbacks but in a way that doesn't feel annoying or like they're a crutch but using them in ways that enrich the actual plot of these two men it's there's a lot of interesting stuff and it's made more interesting by a director who while he's mimicking the story of another artist isn't exactly mimicking like the actual craft he's trying to do his own thing so i just think the movie itself it's two hours and i i kind of dislike the last 10 minutes but i just find a lot to enjoy and to appreciate about the ride leading up to it yeah it is a clever concept and it is pretty well used for the majority of the film i will give it that Uh, All right. Uh, (laughs) That was our very divided review of Saw. I hope you enjoyed it uh, more than I did the film. Uh, And if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please go and rate and review us on iTunes. And if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook. We are there as Underrated Podcast. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to underratedpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. You can find us at underrated underscore pod. And so next week, we'll be doing our final horror film for this month, and it will be the A Nightmare on Elm Street remake. I have not seen this yet, uh, and by the time we do, I will have watched through all of the previous uh, incarnations of this franchise. So I'm very interested to see what they can do with it with you know uh, modern effects and st- uh, acting and storytelling. It could be something quite special, or it could be awful. <laughs> we will see. And uh, we will be joined by Eric Skorzynski, and I'm like 65% sure that's how his name is pronounced. Um, he's a really cool dude, and uh, unlike me, a total horror buff uh, pal from over at uh, the Feel and Film uh, group. 
And he's also someone who likes both that movie and this movie. So, which I don't know, which <laughs> doesn't help. Well, it helps me as someone who likes both. At least I'll have someone on my side next week. Yeah, love it or hate it, it's got to be a really fun discussion. So, until that fun discussion is had, we will see you next time. See ya.